Hello and welcome to the Zapiens Podcast. I'm your host, Lloyd Waits. Today I'm going to be talking to Adam Marblestone and Anastasia Gamak. These two people went on to found Convergent Research, a new way to do research based on these focused research organizations. They both have really interesting and diverse backgrounds. Adam Marblestone came out of George Church's lab at Harvard, then went on to work at, as a senior scientist at a brain-machine interface company known as Kernel, and then went on to work at Google DeepMind before founding Convergent Research. Anastasia Gamak has a wide array of experience in venture capital, working with Neuralink, as well as a company that was one of the first developers of COVID testing, um, and had an amazing experience there and all around before joining Convergent Research and helping Adam with this project forward. We had a really awesome conversation today. Uh, talked about focus research organizations, about the future of brain machine interfaces, and I hope that you guys really enjoy it. Thank you. Well, thanks, guys, so much for uh, for meeting with us today. We were really excited about this one. Um, we've talked to Adam a bunch of times, and we all want to learn a lot more about FROs and talking about kind of being science adjacent. Um, so just to kind of get us give some background, can you guys each give kind of a brief description of what you're working on now and how you got to this point? Sure. Um, I'm Anastasia. I got into this uh, because I have a background at hard tech. I was I worked at a robotics startup for a while. I was early at Neuralink. Um, I've worked at a COVID testing startup, spun up supply chain for much of the testing that ended up going through Los Angeles. Um, and I was really interested in figuring out how to be most impactful in the hard tech space, particularly like maybe patient capital or, or VC funds, um, and I was asking my community uh, for introductions and people, and someone introduced me to Adam, and he replied to my email saying, no, you shouldn't do that. You should do FROs instead, and then I think we started working together the next day. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, let's see. You know, I was, I was a physics undergrad. Um, you know, when I was an undergrad, I was basically just trying to learn stuff, but what, once I... I had like a very, I guess, hubristic kind of conception of what science was from a bunch of books that I read as a teenager and kind of my overall impression of how science projects were supposed to work and how the scientific ecosystem was supposed to be set up. And my physics undergrad did not disabuse me of any of that. It was just theoretical physics. It was great. Mm. Once I got to grad school, I started almost immediately feeling, even though I had a very high freedom fellowship, very high freedom advisor program and all that, I, I felt kind of this immediate mismatch between what I felt like I could do as an individual scientist within the, the research system as it exists now and the kinds of projects that I was interested in. Um, at, you know, starting grad school, that was mostly about nanotechnology, but it gradually moved into neuroscience. And then I basically tried to do large, medium-scale kind of team-based neuroscience, neurotechnology development projects for like the following 10 years and didn't really find the exact right institutional or funding kind of home for that. And so that that leads fairly directly to what we're working on with FROs. Yeah. So they, they kind of, if this is a good summary of what you mean, these focused research organizations kind of fill a gap between something that's uh, like a government funding agency versus a startup because it's not necessarily directly applicable right away. Is that kind of the, the final goal? Yeah. Um, 
I guess the idea is that there are certain aspects of how startups function that we want to be able to mimic, mm -hmm. um, even in a context that is prior to the point where you have a, a product that you're you're planning to sell to people in the near term and, and make a lot of money, as startups are, are supposed to do. Um, so startups have various characteristics. There's a sort of medium-sized team. There's a lot of management. You can get concentrate capital on that team. It's not kind of applying for one grant to do one student and then another grant to do the next student. You sort of have the whole team is funded to do a single purposeful thing that's very time-bounded. And they can ideally kind of structure their whole organization, how the management works, just to, to, in their case, to deliver a product. But we want to be able to do that for certain kinds of research projects where that would be the right model for, for doing the research, which is many research projects are not like that. So I guess a question for you and Asesia as well would be, what do you think of kind of like the long-term vision of these FROs? Um, or kind of like, is this kind of a central piece where you have uh, the, I think it's um, the new way of the new wave of science that distributes all these FROs? Or are you looking for individual FROs that function independently? Um, what's kind of the long-term ultimate goal for something like this? I think we're both pretty flexible about the form that FROs take. Uh, we're really interested in doing highly impactful, very interesting new science. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that will be best within the nonprofit we just founded as part of the Schmidt Futures Network called Convergent Research. Sometimes uh, we're advising another nonprofit called Astera, uh, but also individuals may fund this, um, DARPA agencies may fund this. You could do this sort of as a prelude to doing a for-profit effort you could do this as a for-profit effort um and get uh like program related investments or catalytic capital to do them i think that we're really agnostic about how they happen as long as we're working on the impactful research um, and i think that each particular project will have different reasons to go different directions um, so you mentioned DARPA, and one one of the things when I was reading about a lot of these groups is what makes this so much more unique than DARPA? Because DARPA is, is, in a similar way, is kind of like giving large, ambitious funding money to programs that wouldn't necessarily be able to have anything within the next five years. So what do you think makes these FROs different than a, a group like DARPA? So I think that the, one of the things that DARPA is really good at is exploring a space. So you say, hey, here's a an area where we know we need technology developed or an area that we're concerned about. Let's pick a handful of different projects, all swimming in more or less the same direction, um, add funding to some, pull funding away from others if they don't perform, and it's a little bit more exploratory. Versus an FRO, you walk in with a couple sets of technical milestones and you build specifically towards those. Um, so I think that it solves slightly different problems. Also, it allows you to have this multidisciplinary team that's very focused. And I think that unless a DARPA agency is funding a project that already works like that, they can't mimic that setup. Okay. Um, so how does, how does someone start an organization like this? I mean, this is a very broad and kind of ambitious goal for you guys to set out with. Um, and I mean, I would have no idea where to even start. Like what I, I mean, are people talking to philanthropists or is this something that you need to have a kind of a constitution and set of goals first and then reaching out to these different goals and connecting to labs? Yeah, well, I can tell you a bit about how it evolved. I mean, I think it first evolved from a few specific examples where we had a very strong thesis that 
this was needed. So, so myself and Sam Rodriguez, who had actually been an MIT mm -hmm. physics grad student a few years ago, um, we were working on certain types of projects around brain mapping technology and so on in the, in the academic setting and, you know, contemplated doing startups or other things, but we, we eventually, and we even got DARPA type grants to do mm -hmm. it through, through this agency called IARPA, the intelligence ARPA. Um, and we sort of developed a strong thesis that is at least one example of an FRO. And then the question was really, is there a general category there? Are we really trying to fundraise for one single project or are we actually trying to elicit a category? And so the way it worked is that uh, I got a fellowship um, through this entity Schmidt Futures. Um, it was just at that time just funding me to basically go and do a lot of interviews with scientists and basically ask them, you know, what are, what are the projects that not only you don't have funding for, but you can't contemplate getting funding for, or even if you had funding, you couldn't contemplate organizing the team or getting the right staff on the team or, or managing them in the right way to actually produce that result. And so we interviewed a lot of people and the purpose of those interviews was, was twofold. I mean, one, one was, could we, show the results of those to the to the government basically and say hey you know government agencies should start creating a funding mechanism to do that and the other was to show it to philanthropists and we didn't know what the outcome would be um but it has turned out that this concept of an fro more so than any very specific you know legal embodiment of it or what have you it's it's good for eliciting problems, right? Just as, you know, if, if you go to Y Combinator or something, Y Combinator's website is a very good way of eliciting startup ideas. Um, going and talking about FROs is a very good way of eliciting these sort of mid-scale projects that might be a struggle to fund or organize in some other way, even potentially struggle for something like DARPA to organize them in some cases. And so we've elicited a lot of those. And then basically we then got philanthropic interest in a couple of them, but we were lucky that uh, Schmidt Futures, uh, both actually Schmidt Futures and the Sestera Institute, um, and maybe others in the future are interested not only in particular problems like say climate change or, or Alzheimer's, but they're actually interested in this question of institutional innovation. So they're willing to make a kind of joint bet on specific projects, but then also um, exploring an institutional model and asking whether we can scale some of these ideas that we've been asking about. I was really inspired by Sarah Kearney at Prime Coalition and Elon Gurr at Activate mm -hmm. because they're both working in the climate space and they're working in hard tech and climate. But rather than picking one project, they were trying to figure out how to enable a whole series of projects, one through fellowships and one through uh, like catalytic funding. Um, and so I found that really inspirational. In, in So how do we how do we create this institutional change in more than just the single project we're interested in and how do we enable other people to to do it more easily without sort of like taking a large risk and having to come up with a new institutional model creating a framework that other people then could take a smaller step forward in so um kind of speaking of all of these projects being very interdisciplinary um you both have very interdisciplinary backgrounds um, and how important do you think this is to doing projects like this or doing the projects that these FROs are going to be stepping forward in? Yeah, I think that 
it does take a somewhat interdisciplinary perspective probably to identify problem areas for FROs because if you think about it, like if you just have one one project that you're working on, you're sort of next. So it's easy to ask sort of what's the next step for that potentially, but it's 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 hard to say. Well, what's the white space? What's the gap that the entire field is not able to pursue for some structural reason? So I, I think there there is some probably enrichment for for interdisciplinary thinking, and certainly what we're doing. One of the reasons that I like it is that. I don't think it's going to be like thousands of FROs. I think it's it's not going to, and it's not going to be for any one field, like thousands of neuroscience FROs. It's going to be like, we can go field by field and each field might have one or two or three um, unusual, weird, bespoke problems that need this. And then most things are going to be better done by individuals or by, um, you know, for-profit startups or, or DARPA grants. But you're looking for this weird shape and that shape is sort of inherently not a disciplinary thing that's a kind of structural thing yeah so do you imagine these different fro's communicating with each other to try and share their expertise like maybe the the machine learning fro is talking to the neuroscience fro to try and do better data analytics or something like that i think that's definitely true on like the structure and operating a small team side especially because we're pulling so many people out of academia where they've run um, academic labs, or they've run academic projects, or they've worked as a postdoc for a long time, but they haven't run a startup. Um, and so making sure that everyone collaborates on how to run a team, how to build a team, you know, how to be a nonprofit, how to file your 990 at the end of the year, we really want to make all of those resources available to make it very easy. Um, but I, I do think that there's also going to be like cross-disciplinary talk on, on the projects. Uh, the ones we're considering thus far, I don't think have a whole lot of overlap which is very fun. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of meta-level overlap. You know, how do you hire someone? Um, yeah, what's a reasonable salary to pay? <laughs> you know, those kinds of things. Those are, those are hard questions, too. And so there's a lot of structural overlap. I also hope that, like, this is much longer term, and it's not just FROs. It's also other kinds of para-academic research institutes or structures that are being spun up uh, in, in different, different settings. But that we could create a kind of still very much research focused, but non-academic path where you could potentially work at one fro, then go work at another fro, maybe then go work at a company, come back, you know, be part of an institute, go to another fro, you know, that would be, that would be great. Um, so that people don't feel constrained by a more linear, you know, tra trajectory. Um, I think often, if you're imagining that you only have a certain linear trajectory that you can go on, or one of a few, then that not only constrains where you go then, but also constrains what you do now, right? And so ideally, you don't have as much constraints, right? I think we see this a lot in like ML, right, where, where ML researchers are really free to move between different types of organizations mm -hmm. and um, do different types of work kind of wherever they think they'll be most impactful or they'll have the most fun, and there's meaningful work to be done in lots of different organizations. I mean, I think that's definitely a, a needed space because, I mean, I, I, came, I came from an industry background before I came here, um, and uh, hearing kind of the academic track is kind of horrifying to me because you hear, there's like, okay, you're a grad student, and then you go and do a postdoc for a little bit, and you're in very high demand as a postdoc, but then all of these postdocs now want to become professors, and there's a very low turnover for professors, and then once you're a professor, you're chasing tenure, and it seems like this, this very kind of scary situation to be in. Um, 
And so I think it's great that there's uh, not only industry, but these other groups that are popping up to be able to support um, people who just want to do science and have these productive uh, projects that they can work on. Um, so I guess another thing I would have to ask is where do I sign up to, to join an FRO? Um, and kind of like where if someone who is watching this or someone who is uh, interested in joining one of these FROs or starting one of their own FROs, how would they uh, how would they do that? Would they contact you guys? Or? So I think that on the starting side, 100% contact us. There is an email address, which I think is abstracts at convergentresearch.org. So like send us a two pager, send us a tweet and say, hi, I have an idea. And mm -hmm. And then we'll work to like develop ideas and, and evaluate them. We're, we're looking to do some sort of cohort process and launch a couple of new FROs every year. Mm. Um, and then there are jobs open for our cur current FROs on the Convergent Research website. Um, E11 Bio and Cultivarium are the two FROs that are running within Convergent Research. And they are looking for all sorts of scientists across a whole bunch of different fields and technicians. Um, they're going to try to scale to small startup sized teams so 15 to 20 in the next like eight months mm -hmm. and so they have plenty of hires to make um, but mostly i think we just want to talk to people who are interested about the idea and who are passionate about this work yeah a few, few other comments about that so so astera is also interested in this they also have a contact on their website there's also a, a, we call it a fro inspired project it's not exactly a fro because it's not a totally independent nonprofit, but called the rejuvenome that's about aging biology that's also hiring people um i think that the other thing to say is that we're interested in this at every stage because again it's not going to be like thousands and thousands of froze i think it's going to be really trying to hit specific bottlenecks you know so we're interested in, in sort of this idea of bottleneck analysis like what what is a field structurally missing if you had this data set if you had this system if you had this tool but maybe nobody's incentivized in the right way to build that then you could 10x some other part of the fields or some or, or multiple fields so just finding those things and having more discussion about them online what have you and saying you know here's a thing where if you built it it would 10x a field but nobody can currently get funded to build that or get organized to build that we want to know that and, and in some cases we can even potentially support some of that road mapping activity to elicit that knowledge release white papers publish analyses and so on that would indicate you know what 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 those possible directions are for other philanthropists for the government for us um and just for other scientists to coordinate based on that information yeah so you mentioned a couple of the different frls that you guys have been starting and um some of the things that you're you're interested in and with these so what are what are uh do you have like a list of these fros do you have favorite do you have something in particular that you're interested in kind of like Give me the layout of what's what's going on now with all these different organizations. So right, so again, we have we have two that are convergent research FROs that are both part of this umbrella organization, convergent research, in the Schmidt Futures Network, um, which will eventually also grow to have other funders and and uh, and and other projects. Um, so one of those is about brain mapping, um, or really it's about the technology of brain mapping and it's specifically about technology that's kind of a couple steps out from the way we currently mostly do brain mapping so mo mostly brain mapping at the sort of deep synaptic level of connections between neurons that's mostly done with this method called electron microscopy which is super high resolution microscopy but it requires you to make very thin slices of the tissue 
and it kind of is a very black and white. You're basically either seeing is this pixel on the cell membrane or is it not on the cell membrane? And that's that you don't see that which molecules are, are there. Um, so this FRO E11 bio is trying to develop a brain mapping technology that's still high enough resolution to see synapses and connections, but doesn't require that thin slicing, makes it easier to see very long distance connections of neurons, like if you know one neuron originates here and then it sends a synapse over to the other side of your brain and then that it connects there. Um, that's something very hard for the electron microscope to do uh, because it would have to slice through lots and lots of distance in between. Um, and then also to see molecules in there. So that's a lot of biochemistry. It's a lot of um, virology, molecular biology, and then, then some kind of system development for that. Um, then we have another one that's about tools for engineering unusual microorganisms. That's called cultivarium. Um, and the, the observation there is just that, you know, mostly the microorganisms that get studied and engineered by scientists are just very few E. coli yeast and a few others. And what if you had better technologies for more rapidly kind of onboarding a new organism to be engineered? And then we have this sort of fro-inspired project, the Rejuvenome, that's doing a, a large study of the biology of aging in mice and trying to understand sort of robustly what are the features that are shared across different aging interventions, what's really going on in different parts of the body um, in a robust way with, with anti-aging. So th those are three that we have going now. And then we're very interested in potentially any area where there's, there's a fro-shaped problem that hits an important bottleneck, but I don't know, maybe Anastasia can talk about some of the specific areas that we're I, most I, excited about. Yeah. I think not specifically, maybe like a broad cut would be that good fits often fall in the category of like very large data set that no lab or institution is right now incentivized to make. So the rejuvenome is an example of this. It's a big multi-omic study in longevity across many different interventions, um, platform technologies that they themselves may not be profitable or like their, their use is like, it's not a very clear line between their use and like the study that comes out of it, but that would then enable further studies and further companies. Um, or potentially just like very large experiments that are hard to run. So like climate change experiments or things like that, where you need to both develop the tooling and then run that experiment are kind of the three most obvious buckets, but they aren't the only buckets that FROs will fall into. Um, and then I think that, that we're really kind of area agnostic. We're considering one in, in the math space. I probably shouldn't reveal too much in anything right now, but like we're considering one in the math space, we're considering a couple climate change ones. We're considering um, some things in biosecurity, uh, maybe like a physics FRO. So I think we're really agnostic in the area. We're really excited about things that could make a significant impact, either in like scientific advancements or just make the world a better or safer place. I mean, something that's common between a lot of those is there are areas where you sort of see more or less just like activity in terms of companies, right? So like it's it's definitely possible to do a company to make like a new kind of solar cell. It might not be very easy to make a company to create a data set to help us understand how ecosystems adapt to climate change or something like that. You know, that's that, that's less of a product or service, but it's still like might require a scalable, you know, operationally intensive team. Um, biosecurity you know, has a lot of market failures in it of various kinds or sort of things where you need to be planning for some very long-term outcome, um, reducing risk from something that's much more long-term tail risk kind of events. And so, yeah. 
the things that are just generating public goods. I think it, so. There's this model, which is that a startup is a long time away, which I think is how you could look at E11 Bio, is that there are probably eventual things that might be profitable that come out of that, not within convergent research, but like follow-on companies. That is, there are other things, like a, the rejuvenome is probably just a public good. Like, it would be very hard to spin out a company after, out of that. Um, or like the whole point is that you're releasing this data set so that people yeah. will just understand that. Um, yeah, and then, yeah, it's, it's very hard to capture value from those things, but you need a kind of somewhat startup-like approach to, to generate that value. So what yeah. is the rejuvenome? I know it has to do with longevity, but I, yeah. I'm curious a little bit more about the details. I mean, I guess the basic motivation is that, or like one, one view of, of what's going on in the aging research field is that there's a lot of interesting tantalizing kind of hints at things, but it's, there's still a lot that's not understood about what's fundamentally going on, either at a theoretical level or at kind of just a raw data cohesion kind of level. Um, so there are various drugs and treatments that are shown to extend lifespan in various kinds of animals. Um, there are various other treatments that are not shown to extend lifespan uh, or health span in some functional sense, like, you know, how frail is, is the animal, how fast does it run on the wheel or what have you, but that does something else. Like if you look at the transcriptome of the liver, you know, it looks younger or something like that. Um, there are other things that are just like people have only looked at particular cells, you know, this makes stem cells divide faster or something like that. And so there's kind of this very interesting and tantalizing set of results, but it's also kind of piecemeal. You know, does the stem cell thing, what does that do to the liver? How does that depend on the genetic background of the mice? Does that actually extend lifespan also, right? If you only ask kind of one question at a time, it's very hard to compare across experiments because there also might be some systematic difference in your experiment. Maybe it extends lifespan, but the baseline lifespan is shorter because you had to give them a drug or something, whatever. You know, even the control drug makes their, their life shorter or something like that. So, um, so how do you kind of systematize all this? And so basically the question is how do you make a pipeline that can be applied to genetically diverse mice over their whole lifespan, where you're measuring both this kind of lifespan, health span, functional stuff, and you're basically going in every organ and you're saying, getting a profile and saying, you know, even if you don't understand that profile, here's the vector of what the liver looks like. And is that vector closer or farther from the young vector versus the old vector? Um, so can you kind of profile that way? And then if only if you can do that, we think, would it then start to make sense to look at combination therapies? Because you basically you can say, well, here, this vector for this therapy, this vector for that therapy, we're trying to go over here. Um, what are the vectors that we want to combine? If you don't have a coherent notion of the vector, you just have one or two components here and there. It's like very hard to rationally d d design combinations. I think that the rejuvenome is pretty exciting because if you talk to people in the field, even who do one of these single like organs or one of these single interventions or basically any lab, everyone's so excited about it. No one... None of these labs could fund the study. They would never consider it. They're all excited to use the data because it's going to really help kind of uniformly people within the space advance their own research and compare their research to other people's research as well. And to be clear, this is very hard to do. Um, you know, in other studies where they've done the genetically diverse mice, even the genetically diverse mice getting a robust result, you know, it depends. they have three different sites, you know, ex experimental sites or like, how do you even measure, you know, these things over a whole lifespan? It's going to take years, right, to do it. And it's, it's a lot of money also to do the, the omic analysis of each of these tissues. 
and a lot of processing. And so how do you decide? Do you sequence it now? Do you bank the samples and wait till sequencing is cheaper? It's actually like quite difficult to do this right. And, and so that's why it also requires like a lot of kind of project management and, you know, just design and sort of thinking on a timescale that would be hard for an individual student or postdoc to, to say, I'm going to just coordinate this whole thing. Yeah. Nick Nick Shom, who's running this project um, for Astera, is pretty lucky because he's partnering with the Buck, who has or the Buck Institute on Aging, who has just extensive experience designing and running mouse experiments, um, which is why this is FRO inspired, because kind of building out a wet lab and doing it ourselves was not the best way to run this experiment. Um, I think that everyone involved is really kind of excited about the outcomes rather than like sticking everything into an FRO-shaped box. Yeah, and I think there isn't even absolutely defined FRO-shaped box. I think that it's a really good tool for eliciting projects that have certain kinds of needs and characteristics. And then each one, they will all be different, and sometimes they will insource or outsource different parts of things and so on, or partner with other people. And that's all okay. It's not meant that FRO has to be totally isolated from its environment or have some incredibly rigorous set of rules. But at the same time, we do want to have some process that makes it easier to to spin these up with some amount of uniformity and work as a nonprofit and be acceptable to donors and all those other things. And that, that does mean you need a certain amount of process. So, um, I mean, obviously you guys are putting a lot of work into this. Is this your full-time position is just working with these FROs? Do you guys do research anymore or work with venture capital? Nope. No time. <laughs> I was just complaining to Adam, not complaining, but our schedules, we've been all over, lots of meetings, just like fully packed schedules. I think, though, it's just incredibly exciting. Everyone we talk to on the philanthropic front or the research front or like the government front is very excited about trying to pull some different levers in institutional design and seeing what shakes out. Um, and so we're, we're pretty lucky to have momentum and, and um, I am very happy my schedule is full-time focused on this. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's definitely a phase transition of doing it full-time versus sort of just thinking about it as an abstract idea. That's all very positive. Um, I'm not sure when I'm going to go back and ever do any actual research anymore, but that's totally fine because I think that there's still a huge amount of interesting ideas that are sort of flowing through us. And then the, the key question is just like how much can we enable other people to do interesting things? And that's, yeah, it, I, I'm very happy. <laughs> yeah. You get to talk to cool people about cool ideas all day long every day. Our <laughs> life's pretty great. I definitely like somehow optimize my life for yeah. just like discussing really awesome science with people. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so in each of your backgrounds, this is kind of, uh, it's been an interesting path that leads you here. I mean, you've had a very diverse research background and you've worked with a lot of different venture capital and different companies. Um, and so is there anything in particular in these in this path that kind of stands out to you? Like, did you have a, a favorite group that you worked with or something interesting that happened at Neuralink or did you have something that stood up to you when you were um, working at DeepMind or, or with Kernel, for example? There have been amazing things in each step. And I, I think that there, it was only after several different experiences that I feel like I have like a, a mentality of kind of what we're looking for with, with, with this. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, in physics, you kind of have this like 
really, really abilities to kind of really go deep and, and understand ideas at a really deep level and have them be really coherent. Um, you know, in as like a biology student, like you can just go in and you kind of just prototype things and do experiments and 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 go in the wet lab and and, and discover things. Um, but then I, I struggled to kind of organize larger projects in that setting. Uh, I was involved in a, a brain computer interface company called Kernel, which was a really great experience uh, where, you know, because of the speed and again, unity of purpose of startups, you know, you can call up somebody who's in, you know, some other country and say, hey, you know, we want to offer you this position to do this really cool thing. And then they're there like two weeks later or a week later, and they're like the best person in the world. And they're like working on that team. It's like really crazy. Um, and then I was also at DeepMind for a bit, which was kind of, you know, I wish we could do this in other fields, but in AI, it's a really great environment where it kind of has both the academic and the fro style research. So I think of things like AlphaFold or things like that as being, which is like they have their protein folding uh, team that just over a couple of years just kind of really nailed a software tool for, for protein folding. That's kind of very fro-like, but then they have this whole pool of more academic style research to draw on whenever they want to create one. So, you know, there, there's a lot of things that I'm taking from, from previous experiences. And uh, I mean, one of the worries is that each thing is sort of optimized for its own best characteristics. So how do you actually combine them? But hopefully each fro will figure out how does it combine those types of characteristics uh, depending on its particular mission and leadership and what have you. So, yeah. Uh, I really just like loved being in a room with amazing either like neuroscientists or materials experts or um, this COVID startup that like people who just like deeply understood how PCR machines work along with our mechanical engineers and then our software engineers and our ops people and our HR people and our office manager, everyone sitting in the same room, knowing that the thing we are working on is like the highest priority. And like, how do you arrange your tasks around getting COVID tests out there faster, building BCIs, uh, making robots that make cheeseburgers high, Alex? Um, <laughs> like, no matter sort of what the like the goal was, getting all of these different people sitting in a room, solving it together, and combining different uh, expertise in like education and uh, kind of interests inside and outside of work was just a really rewarding experience and I have probably made more friends through work than I have through my personal life in the last decade because I've been able to work on these really amazing teams. Um, I know working with that, that COVID testing startup must have been insane for the, the past year or so or more. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I walk down the street past Moderna most of the time when I park and there was one time I saw a jogger running by and then he started, he went outside the doors of Moderna and just started cheering on people from That's Moderna. So and cool. there was this poor security guy, like, what do, what do I do? Yeah, um, in, in March of 2020, we were spinning up and we had people show up at, like, the factory door to try to get COVID tests. It was like, yeah, I was yeah. I was in Kinshasa. I was in DRC doing um, mobile money payments and, and last mile payments in fintech. And on the plane ride home, Milan Spikovich, who's now working with us, saw a tweet from Laura Deming and was like, you need to come help this company. And I like showed up Tuesday morning and suddenly like we just spent the next three months building out a supply chain and making millions of COVID tests. It was, uh, it felt like we were actually doing something. And I think that that's kind of like some of the same inspiration that we have here is that like we can actually do things. Like hopefully we're going to pull levers and work on bottlenecks that 
actually contribute to like the well-being of the world so was that competitive with groups like Abbott Labs or was there just so much free space that it was I think that there was so much free space I think that that everyone went in a slightly different direction and at the time they thought that it might spin up and then spin down real quick like there was like this will be here for like six months and then Mm -hmm. we'll be done um just like how do we get COVID tests out ASAP yeah so, Adam, I, I have a couple questions about Kernel as well. If you want. Um, so, I mean, it's this, They, I think it was last year they put out their, their flow um, and their, their other helmet. I forget what it's called off the top of my head. Um, They're working on another one called Flux. Right, that's right. Yeah. I remember one was blood flow and one was uh, was magnetic fields. Um, I should have known, the, being the magnet guy, I probably should have remembered the magnetic field one. Um, but um, I know you've always kind of, been more pro non-invasive uh neural interfaces compared to uh more invasive interfaces is that did that kind of rub out in kernel or uh was that you influencing kernel or kernel influencing you say i have to be a little careful with all the full set of things i say about this i i did influence them mm-hmm. i was involved in the pivot that they did towards right. non-invasive uh devices like my my long-term take on it though is that this is a little bit, I would say, fro-spirited or something like that, is that um, I haven't yet seen any of the existing BCI companies like quite like going in the direction that, that I think is like the long-term direction, which is really like mostly non-invasive, but you have something like cellular transducers or you have some kind of nanoparticle, kind of very microscopic viral or cellular transducers and then that mostly communicates with the non-invasive thing so because at least the non-invasive thing is involved in that vision mm-hmm. i think that pushing on the non-invasive is really exciting um and that things that one does for non-invasive now first of all they're just really really more accessible and, and great to do now and relevant for for different mental health conditions and so on but um the non-invasive i think is definitely part of the, the long-term picture uh, no offense to Neuralink, but I think that invasive electrodes, I'm not sure if they're part of the long-term picture down the line. And uh, so then like the things that I think are really kind of key to this are like the non-invasive part and then also things like gene therapies or cell therapies or other kinds of more biological things on the more biological side. Although there are some interesting hybrid things like ultrasound, you know, kind of semi-invasive ultrasound or things like that. So what do you think of Kernel's kind of long-term direction? I think they're, they're focusing mostly on being like a research device now. Um, but do you think that there's a chance of them becoming more than that? Or do you think that would probably be... Yeah, yeah. No, I think they have very broad ambition to like really be a um, very broadly utilized, you know, neurotech. This is just their first product. But, but even with the direction they're going with this, it's very much intended for like scale. They're, they're not doing the things that are like room-sized, you know, gigantic devices they're really trying to make a headset that you really could not necessarily i think it would be over constraining to make it run on like an iphone battery or something like that right but like striking a balance of like something that you really could wear freely moving um and then the research is is discovering what is that useful for and yeah i've heard their ceo is a interesting and sometimes controversial figure you, you, I, had a great ex- yeah, I had a great experience with Brian. Yeah, you okay. should have him on the podcast. I would, I would love to. Yeah. If you're yeah, Brian, Brian, Brian's really good. <laughs> he, he, was, he was really great. Um, he's a really, he was a really good CEO, too, right? Because he was CEO of a tech but not neurotech company beforehand. And he was really, I thought he was a really good CEO. Yeah. 
Um, so that was with Neuralink and the uh, Adam kind of mentioned this. I've always kind of wondered because you worked previously. Neuralink was a very invasive plan, um, and you've always been kind of focused on the non-invasive. Do you guys ever kind of like butt heads on direction? Uh, I mean, not specifically in neural interfaces either. This could be more broad, I, just kind of directions of FROs. I really think that like from that first email, Adam and I have been bizarrely on the same wavelength. It's kind of freaky, actually. Um, and so I think that uh, we both come at things from very different perspectives, and we both ask each other why a lot if we don't understand, and then inevitably like understand more and meet in the middle. Um, and so, so, so no, not really. I think we're really and, and interested neither, in impact. Neither of us are dogmatic about any this. There's, <laughs> there's, there's no great battle there. Um, and yeah, again, I think I think that these things will like meet in the middle. And the only question we would ask is, is there some FRO or something like that that the field won't do in this? It's not actually obvious to me. I think there are a bunch of good neurotech companies. Kernel is great. A bunch of other good ones to be created, and then a bunch of other you know useful things: gene therapy, cell therapy. It's not clear to me that there is a brain-computer interface FRO that is needed exactly, but there probably are for like more basic neuroscience. Like if you want to get you know every neuron in the mouse brain recorded, there's I think that's probably more fro style than you know less for humans, but more for just understanding. Yeah. So this brain mapping FRO, how do you think that this fits into this space of you have your, your non-invasive groups like Kernel, you have your invasive groups like Neuralink, um, and then you have a, a million other ones in between that are things like wetware um, and organoid groups that are focusing on drug discovery but also have influence in regenerative medicine. Um, so where do you think something like, like this fits in, These uh, the specific kind of brain mapping FRO that you're working on? I mean, I have super high hopes for it, but admittedly, it's like pretty speculative exactly how that's going to work. <laughs> so so the, the hope is that there is some level of brain architecture, which is, you know, which types of cells connect to which across which brain areas, what are the kind of motifs of that, um, that you can't see in these like very local, if you just take a cubic millimeter of brain, it just looks like this crazy forest kind of, and there are some patterns, but you wouldn't see it unless you saw it's kind of like if I just took a very complicated highway or something, I just looked some tiny little intersection in there. It's like, okay, well, there's just lines going across. But if you actually looked at the U.S. highway system or something, it would kind of make sense that, like, Chicago is something that people go to or something. So so the hope is that um, you would have uh, this level of description that would then open up a huge amount of understanding of uh, just how does the brain work and, like, what does it even mean? Like, like you're looking at with these kernel devices, you know, at different parts of cortex or something like what is what is that? Like, why are they different? Like, what does it mean if one of them turns on? Who's turning it on? <laughs> you know, like we don't know that stuff. And so that's where I think that the, the connectomics, long range kind of connectomics would come in. And then also for diseases, you know, and so if you understood what cells are mediating different types of diseases, then you could in, the, in this future vision where you have cellular and viral and other kinds of things. A plus non-invasive then you would like turn on that exact right cell type or that exact right you know circuit and then you would cure diseases but both of those are pretty you know we don't know right <laughs> right yes. it may be that actually this doesn't tell you that much more about the brain than we, we knew already or something right it could also have uh potentially like interesting impacts on ml or ai like if we better understand how your prefrontal cortex receives reward signals from your amygdala maybe that's directly applicable to reinforcement learning maybe it's not i think that though we just have like no idea right yeah that, that's an interesting thought that i haven't heard a lot before because i mean there is always a lot of confusion about how 
ML started out as this bio-inspired architecture, um, and you have neurons that are not real neurons, and then um, a lot of back and forth there, but kind of going back to inspiring ML based on bio-inspired designs, which are typical whenever you hear bio-inspired, you think of someone like making a robotic dragonfly or something, but it's, it's a lot more fundamental than that. You can talk about specific computer architectures that do this too, um, which I think is really cool. Um, but on kind of a, a, another tangent, you had mentioned earlier how a lot of the point of FROs is to try and find a place to make a, a better world um, and try and get the make sure that funding is going to places that are able to better people's lives. And you had also mentioned at one point when you were talking about biosecurity, kind of these long tales of, of existential risk. Um, and I know both of these projects aren't necessarily directly connected to something like an existential risk. How do you guys feel about um, a lot of... Uh, projects that are out to prevent existential risk. I mean, AI is always a, a, a hot topic to talk about it, as well as biosecurity. Um, and so is this something an FRO is probably going to go into a direction for? AI in particular, I think that there are many organizations that are working on this, and it's like very well funded and very well, like that the space of what AI safety looks like is fairly well tiled. So I think that we want to be additive. And so unless there's something like very specific that comes up, it's unlikely that we'll work in that space because other people are doing a lot of really excellent work there. Um, I do think in general, uh, I am fairly bought into like effective altruist causes and, and into uh, preventing existential risk. And there's a lot... There, there's a lot of road mapping to be done about what specific technology we could differentially develop that would help prevent existential risk. At the same time, choosing not to develop things that could be um, potentially harmful. So I, I definitely think that this is a direction that we'd be very willing to go. I do think, though, that like um, it is not the only thing we're interested in doing. I think it is like one of several things we're interested in working on. I think that was also just like uh, it is hard to quantify how mental health. Um, is 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 a risk or is a, a suffering that that is in the U.S. And, and internationally, and so working in in spaces like that on either neuroscience or other um, other interventions for mental health is really interesting. I think that there's a lot of like fundamental things, like the cultivarium is a really good example, where like this project could be really useful for medicine. It could be really useful for industrial applications. It could be really useful for climate change. Um, so one of those is an existential risk, potentially like um, long tail climate change could destroy humanity. And so this project is a very early building block in, in responding to that. Yeah, there are a number of things that make this quite hard. So, I mean, one thing that I, I will say is that th there's a lot of science kind of funding entities that will just basically say and any, any new knowledge in any context is good. Science is just always good. And we don't subscribe to that. We actually think that there could be, as was the case with nuclear weapons or what have you, there could be technologies developed that within a certain context in a certain time would be sort of net negative from an X-risk perspective. So that we think that that's possible. And we also think there's possible that there's some technologies that would be sort of robustly net um, positive from an X-risk perspective um, with caveats in exactly how the information is used and so on. And then there's a lot of kind of gray area or area where we're kind of leaning on the side of not, the knowledge is probably good, not only because it would create economic growth of various kinds, but it could 
improve our toolkit for even understanding what experts are. So, so, so for example, like the brain mapping project, will it differentially accelerate AI or AI safety? I can make arguments that it would differentially accelerate AI safety given the state of knowledge where we are now. Um, we have learning algorithms that seem to work pretty well, but we don't really know what training signals to train them with or how to align them. And a lot of the long range circuitry, like you're mentioning, you know, how the amygdala trains, you know, another part of the brain or how the basal ganglia trains the cortex or these other things that, you know, that, that might be um, differentially on the sort of safety or alignment side, but it's very hard to know that for sure. And it may be the AI isn't even that close to the brain. So it might be just kind of very neutral or something. Um, and then there's the problem that there are multiple X risks of different kinds. So like getting off the planet is probably you know, good for many kinds of X risks. But if you do that by accelerating biotechnology so much that, um, you know, people create bioweapons, you know, that's, that's bad. Um, you know, a lot of biotech could be useful for climate or health or other things, some of which is X risk. And then some of that could be bad. And so, so navigating that is, is tough. Um, but that's part of why we want to have just a deliberate approach to it. We want to fund other kinds of road mapping and understanding this stuff um, and not just kind of just go around and just do stuff because it sounds cool or something. Yeah. That's interesting you say that because uh, we spoke to Kevin Esfeld about just before the pandemic started, actually. And he was talking specifically, obviously, he's big into existential risk. Um, and I think he said something along the lines of, I, I don't want to completely quote him because I don't want to misquote him by mistake, but it was something along the lines that he felt that if it was up to him, viral research would be stopped because he thinks that it's too much of an existential risk compared to what could possibly come out of that. Which to me, I thought was crazy because, I mean, you have so many viral vectors, so many gene therapies that are all relying on these these viral researches. But he felt, and I mean, he's much more an expert in it than I am, of course, um, that it was the risk was so high that it was something that if it was up to him, he would just have it stopped. Um, so I think it's it's very interesting to kind of look into these different existential risks. Um, similarly, you have Max Tegmark, who's more, I mean, a big name in AI, who now has the Future of Life Institute, is one of the leaders of the Future of Life Institute, which is specifically, specifically trying to mitigate um, dangerous AIs in kind of an uh, unobvious way and kind of making sure that we understand AI more than just kind of like saying no more AI which I think is a very good approach. Um, so did anything, I mean, we've talked about kind of your, your professional journeys from each of you, but what about like your personal lives? Has there been anything in say, the way that you grew up that made you interested in science? I know Adam mentioned that he read a lot of science fiction books growing up, um, but I, I wasn't sure if there was something that made you reach out to becoming science uh, adjacent. I, I grew up in Pasadena, and so all of my friends' parents were either movie producers or worked at Caltech and JPL. So I thought that you grew up to be an astrophysicist. Um, and so I like, from the age of six, Jocelyn Keene, like, I thought everyone was Jocelyn. Um, she's like my friend's mom. <laughs> and like, I, it took me like a long time to realize that that wasn't how the real world worked as much as I would like that to be how the real world worked. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just like really inspired by kind of, looking at the system pieces of, well, we made this discovery, you know, 50 years ago, and then it got, it was forgotten. And then someone unearthed that paper and now technology's changed in a way that we can use it meaningfully. Um, and, and all of the ways that we've progressed over the last several hundred years as a species, you know, there are lots of s systematic problems in the world and, and where are a lot of things that we still need to fix. 
But as a whole, people are just remarkably better off because of technology. And Adam, did you did you want to elaborate maybe on some of the science fiction books yeah. that are like that really drove you? I would say I had somewhat similar kind of like my parents were not scientists, but it was close enough that I kind of had a glimpse of it, which is maybe allows a more idealized view or something. That's kind of like the science fiction books are what's the real thing. So like my my dad. Uh, was not a hard scientist. He did. He was like an amateur astronomer. He had a telescope and stuff. I thought that was really cool. So we, I had astronomy books because of my dad. And that even when you when you start there and then you go to Barnes and Noble, you go to the astronomy section or whatever, and then you next to that is the science section. And there's nanotechnology and the brain and string theory and all those other things. So, so I had all those things. Um, and none of the kind of like, oh, you know, I'm struggling to get tenure <laughs> or, you know, God, this experiment is so hard. I had this very idealized view of it. And, um, yeah, I read a bunch of, you know, sci-fi books, Arthur C. Clarke and, uh, you know, Werner Vinge and all these, all these other, other great ones. So would you guys consider yourselves transhumanists? Uh, I know there's kind of a growing transhumanist movement of trying to reach out to human enhancement, which is kind of a lot of the reason why Zapians got started. Um, but I mean, obviously you guys are very in deep in the field. That can be kind of a, a dirty word to use sometimes. So I, I don't tend to use like a specific word like this, but I would say I'm like very much influenced by that streak of thought. Like it seems lame for us to have had millions of years of evolution and then just kind of, you know, figure out our material needs and then just like stop and like our brains stay the same and our psychology stays the same and our body stays the same. I think it's like very unlikely that like we just like reach a level of happiness and we're just like sitting there. We're like, hey, great, you know, sort of. A good version of 20th century life is the best that it gets or something right so in that sense absolutely yeah yeah i used to be pretty bought into like i evolved to eat meat so i should eat meat and then i heard some somebody on a transhumanist podcast be like but why and i was like oh no but why <laughs> <laughs> uh so i like it's influenced me i don't know if i would call myself a transhumanist okay okay um so why the focus on brain mapping and longevity specifically. So, I mean, you were mentioning how there are certain bottlenecks in the field, but why do you think we should kind of hit the hammer on these things now? Like, why do you think this is the right time to address these bottlenecks rather than waiting for some other, say, like, computational revolution to make everything very easy? Yeah, I mean, some things that kind of keep me up at night sometimes is whether, whether there will be an AI transition of some kind that then basically makes what we're doing somewhat irrelevant because the main thing was that you get you know agi or something like that in practice when i was working at DeepMind, and that was kind of i would say somewhat the mentality of of the company i mean i think they've changed their model now but it used to be solve intelligence and use it to solve everything else maybe i just felt like that wasn't my background and so i wanted to try to do you know solve everything else and then use it to solve intelligence or something but um i just never quite fully resonated with it it's felt too monolithic but there's a decent chance that like certain technology transitions will massively outweigh all the other ones um something like brain seems to me on path potentially still on path for really big ai things that could happen um and then the the aging thing i mean you can justify it in a number of ways but you can also just say that's one of the highest leverage things on just health generally um thing is perfectly sufficient way saves trillions of dollars in the healthcare costs and so on if you can even get a few years you know improvement in health span i think that the work that we're doing at 11 bio or one of the other fro's we're considering over the next 30 or 40 years 
would have happened anyway. And we have this ability to like shorten that timeline by 35 years. And uh, it just seems like a very obvious leverage point to pull. Um, yeah. So um, I've heard kind of a, a lot of groups will be deep down. They're looking for this idea of consciousness when they're doing some form of brain mapping. Right? Um, but I've heard a lot of groups, Ed Boyd in, in particular, will repeatedly say that his goal is to find consciousness, but he doesn't think that we're there yet. He thinks that we need to develop more tools in order to be able to, to get to that point. Um, so what, what camps are you guys in? Is it more that you have kind of a rough idea of consciousness? Is it somewhere that you think we have no idea, we need to have a better understanding of the mapping? Or do you think it's something that it's more of a philosophical question where you can kind of figure it out with a neural network and a, and a, and a chalkboard? One of the books I read as a kid, I read David Chalmers' book on consciousness. I read Dan Dennett books on consciousness, a bunch of things. And I didn't feel like we were there. Like, I didn't feel like there was possible to like have a conclusion that, like, I felt like that was just very interesting for thinking, but it didn't lend to an, any kind of answer. And I'm just not, I'm not convinced by the people who say there is no, there's nothing to see here. Basically, it's just a, an illusion of some kind. I'm, I, like, I don't, I'm not ready to go that far. Um, so yeah, I would say Ed has definitely inspired me like all of my thinking about neuroscience a lot and it's pretty similar perspective yeah of sort of let's figure out what the architecture is let's figure out what we can measure um try to explain more thought and behavior and like if we still can't figure out consciousness in that setting then you know kind of get more concerned but like i don't know where to go with it right now very happy to say I have no idea. There are a lot of people I really respect who spend a lot of time thinking about this, and I will let them keep thinking about it, and they can tell me when they have a conclusion that I should act on. But uh, until then, I don't... I, I'm, um, I'm pretty into, like, using... using things that can, like, directly influence my life or choices. So if there is a reason why this would, like, influence whatever I picked to do next or something like that i would think very deeply about it but until then i'm gonna let adam and ed and the qualia guys or uh eas think about it and they can tell me what their re the results are i do think a lot of these things are sort of bottlenecked like the exploration of this could be bottlenecked in some ways by sort of these types of problems and including throw problems but just tools generally i mean inducing very specific states and perturbations of consciousness that aren't just kind of what we get day to day with molecules or gene therapies or ultrasound or other kinds of things it's something we can't really do very precisely and safely now um so you could say we're kind of very we're kind of just going on a one track <laughs> normal human consciousness <laughs> um it's very hard to experiment on this and yeah um, do you think there could be kind of shortcuts or little things along the way that would help like i mean the kind of basic physics example is like you don't need the standard model to figure out a lead lead collision you don't need to understand consciousness to make a brain machine interface. Um, and do you think you can kind of reach similar end goals without actually having a complete theory of consciousness, which would be something that would be very complicated? Probably. Yeah. Although it's going to get weird, <laughs> right? Like, you know, like if you have really great AI or brain inspired AI or really powerful brain interfaces, like it does get a little weird to not have any answer, <laughs> you know? <laughs> 
have seen enough Star Trek to have an opinion on this. <laughs> I think you can do those things, and then you'll just be like, wow, we don't have an answer. <laughs> like, this is bad. Um, so another thing that uh, I thought was interesting about what you said, Anastasia, is that um, you wanted to have an answer so that it would impact your life, but you're also talking about effective altruism groups. So I feel like a theory of consciousness would be directly applicable to something like effective altruism because you would have say it's very hard to make decisions when you're not able to know what is and what is not conscious and so you're not really able to be effectively altruistic in that case so does that kind of change your mind about spark notes of, of consciousness or i think that i would happily like take a spark notes of consciousness i don't think anyone has like enough of an understanding or like a high enough credence in it yeah. to like Influence direction. I do think that, like, one of the things that is useful about startups is that people have different specialties and expertise, and not everyone has to do everything. You do a little more of everything than you would at, like, a huge company, but, like, um, I like to build organizations, and I like to see, like, what... I'm very excited about bringing technologies into the world and trying to make impactful, differentially good technologies I know lots of philosophers who spend a lot of time thinking about consciousness. I'm very happy to introduce you to them. Um, but I'm like happy to like separate those roles and like take their advice, but not have to do it myself and focus on um, like the FRO piece. And in your experience, a lot of these philosophers, are they talking a lot or are they, are they acting a lot? I think that, that there is something that, I think it's a little bit of both. I think that like EA does a very good job of thinking through downside risks and considering outside of opinions, um, also doing a lot of thinking. Uh, that being said, they've created a very large movement that like you talked about existential risk. So while I maybe sometimes will criticize EA for not taking enough actions, the fact that you know about existential risk, I actually like think that like Toby Ord or... Well, McCaskill has done a lot of work there to make sure that you knew about it. Um, it's not the work I want to do. I'm very glad to be doing other work, but I'm glad that they have done that. Yeah, I think philosophy is actually mega impactful. Yeah. It's like insanely impactful. It's not always obvious, but it's actually like mega impactful in terms of like, why are we sitting here now and all this stuff. Um, and a lot of the current like generation are like super kind of action oriented in a certain sense. It's just consciousness I think we might be limited by the science part, right? So that's why I'm not reading as many, like spending all day reading consciousness philosophy books. Right. Like there's a, there's definitely an alternate world where things like some of the facts on the ground are slightly different, where I am spending all the my time reading consciousness books because that is actually really important. But yeah. yeah, something I feel like I've always encountered is that there's definitely a line between a scientific question and a, and a philosophical question. And a lot of the times it gets kind of blurry, especially now. Um, and that kind of like, how does a brain work? How does a person think? These are objective, answerable questions that if you had like, you had some crazy experiment that was able to understand exactly how thought processes work, there is an objective truth here. Whereas if you have something that's like, what is right and wrong, that's not something that you can just spend enough time on a chalkboard and, and figure it out. Um, and so I think that's, I, I completely agree with you guys that these philosophical questions are very important, but sometimes you need to understand the science in order to kind of make your philosophy work properly. And that's one of the things I'm excited about. We're in an opportunity to, like, we have an opportunity to provide some of that scientific backing. Like, there are things that we're considering doing. Like, if anyone who's listening has an economics FRO, I'd be really thrilled to figure out how we can 
build FROs to influence our philosophy or build FROs to influence our policy, um, I, I think that we have a, a great opportunity here. Actually, sometimes we point to um, Y Combinator did an experiment on universal basic income that was kind of unusually large scale, unusually tightly managed para-academic experiment where they hired serious economists and stuff, but they wanted to organize that outside of academia to kind of do the job operationally in the right incentive structure. And like you could cons perhaps consider that as having been a uh, UBI pro to some okay. extent. Yeah. Um, so let's have, have kind of a goofy question where say Elon Musk just watched this podcast he got your email address and he says, I want to give you all the money that you need to do whatever you want. How would you spend that? How would you guys try and revolutionize the world using your FROs and limitless funding? It's not that different from what we're trying to do now. <laughs> <laughs> so we're sort of acting as if we're in not, you know, some, some weak approximation of that scenario. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I really like this idea of bottleneck analysis. I really like this idea of technology road mapping. I really like this idea of try and analyze this differential technology development thing. And, you know, you make a list. And again, I don't think it's thousands because I think there's a lot that the world can just do in the existing structures, right? So given our, and I'm not going to individually solve every science problem, right? So it's basically like, given our lever here, I think we find the top, you know, 20 or 30 FROs, um, which adds up to like, you know, not even a fraction of Elon's total net worth, actually, right? I think with a few billion, actually, we could kind of tile the space of, of froze. Um, and then a lot of the rest could be done with, like, for-profit vehicles or other things. And I don't think that's a silly question. I think it's, like, exactly the question to be asking everybody, because I think that these highly impactful opportunities are out there so whether that happens through us whether that happens through fros the idea being if you have something exceedingly impactful uh, a new institution a new type of research like pursue it like it, assume that there is funding for really awesome highly impactful high expected value ideas and figure out how to like turn all the right claps that's not a saying how to like turn all the right keys at the right time to make it happen yeah, I think the most pernicious mode is if we just don't talk about it, right? So there's all these great project ideas, but it's kind of, you can't get a grant to do that. You can't, it would kind of damage your academic career. It kind of would look weird for investors. So you're just not going to talk about it at all. You're not going to try to raise money for that or build the team for that. If you can break out of that, and if we contribute to that by saying, well, there's this idea of an FRO, um, and some of them have been funded and more of them will be funded. But if mostly what we're doing is we're just kind of causing people to like, talk about the thing, then actually, yeah, then Elon will fund it if it's a good idea, probably. <laughs> you know, if it's sufficient, you know, or somebody will fund it, right? This could be things like, um, you know, changing the way the grants are done to be from a lottery, right? Like, in theory, someone with a large pot of funds could just, like, run that experiment. Uh, I've, I've read a lot about how, and potentially it is, like, as good or better than how we currently do grant making, um, it could be like spinning up new core core spaces if we like core resources if we think it'd be really useful. I think that all of these are like potential opportunities um, and talking about them and getting like other people who are excited and making the right connections. It's all very possible. So I guess it's kind of a meta question then. What is the bottleneck to the FROs? 
if it's not funding, is it is it people? Is it staff? We always we can use more funding for sure. I think that there's like some sort of matching algorithm between like a really great team, a really great like good idea for an FRO and funders, and I think that kind of going through that and figuring out who the right people are and what the right idea is, um, like fairly high touch and fairly high finesse because there isn't like a playbook and there's not like a marketplace for it the way that there are with startups. Um, and so like creating kind of how that system works is right now what, what the big bottleneck is. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. And then also talented people to come in of various kinds. So uh, op- operational people that complement science backgrounds, um, people at doing multiple type, multiple parts of the, of the process, right? There are these cross-disciplinary teams and, you know, FROs, at least as they're done now, I mean, they, they are nonprofits, right? And so it's not like you're going to become Mark Zuckerberg in four years by joining the FRO. You're going to solve some really important problem and you're going to work with an awesome team. You might be at the birth of a new industry and stuff. But a lot of people want more career security or what have you. And so so I think, I think it's going to be great um, and it will self-select for people that want to do this and We'll also be able to create really attractive, you know, structures for that to be done in. But to to be honest, I mean, there is an experiment, which is who joins these, who funds these, and then how much failure tolerance do those have? Because there's going to be some of them that fail. So, you know, we kind of just have to run the experiment. And the more support we can get to run the experiment, and the more talented people run that experiment themselves the more likely it is to succeed. And then once it succeeds, then I think you have the self-sustaining thing where people can go through from one fro to another and it's much more high probability that one gets funded and those people go off and then they later do other things that create other structures and then the whole thing just works. But we're at a point where we have to prototype the first few and we have to get consistent funding for those. And that has to So if you were talking to a, a physics graduate student who uh, was interested in biotech and possibly interested in po- going into an FRO in the in the future after his graduation, what kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, absolutely. Just think just think about doing it, and I, I would I would try to get a group together and understand do do this road mapping, do this bottleneck analysis, and think about where you'd actually be most interested to to do that. Um, and then even if your idea is somehow redundant with some other idea that, that gets created or whatever, it's not absolutely the only, even if you end up joining one rather than creating one de novo, you would still have done that thought process. Um, yeah. I often give this advice to like even undergrads is to start building things. So I think that oftentimes you do like exactly what's part of your thesis or you do something that's like exactly part of your undergrad degree and you like take it to classes, but you know, build projects, build consortiums, run small workshops, publish papers, do a podcast, um, and start, like, showing that you are willing to put the time and effort into, like, working in a space, because I think that that is how you actually make the best connections um, and, and gain the most relevant experience. I'll also say that we're definitely interested in doing more physics-intensive ones. Um, the first three are pretty bio-intensive. There's maybe some microscopy component, a little bit of physics some microfluidics, those kinds of things, but it's like not like really hardcore, like state-of-the-art, you know, particle physics kind of things. But many things will be. I mean, if you want to work on fusion or, you know, superconducting electronics or those kinds of things, you know, 
there will be froes that have very intense physics and uh yeah physicists are, are my favorite <laughs> so, i was gonna yeah. say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay. um, well thanks a lot guys yeah. I, I really enjoyed our conversation and thanks for coming on i, I think this was great yeah, yeah me too thanks so fun. much yeah awesome we say thank you again afterwards <laughs> <laughs> thanks <laughs>